a, a simple title is preparation always precedes blessing. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Hosea chapter 10 and verse 10. And we're going to read that, uh, read uh, Hosea 10 chapter, or verse 10 through verse 12. We're going to read it, we're going to let it sit for a minute, and then at the end of the sermon we're going to get back on it and, and see what it has to say. Uh, Hosea chapter 10 verse 10 uh, and I'm reading from the King James tonight it's my desire that I should chastise them and the people shall be gathered against them when they shall bind themselves in their two furrows and Ephraim is as a heifer that is taught and loveth to tread out the corn but I passed over upon her fair neck and I will make Ephraim to ride and Judah shall plow and Jacob shall break his clods you sow to yourselves in righteousness and you'll reap in mercy Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Just let that sit for a little bit. We'll, we'll get back to it, uh, what it really means. In life, uh, I would think most of us want to be successful. Uh, whatever, whatever measure that you use to measure success, we all have that. We want to be good at our jobs, we want to find success in our families, we want to find success in, in whatever it might be. There's a, a really cool book, it's not a religious book by any stretch of imagination, it's called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, The Story of Success, and I've been able to read it. Um, but I, I want to I just kind of quote or, or go through a, something that kind of blew my mind. They, again, this, I guess you would say it's a self-help book or a motivational book, but Malcolm Gladwell, he, he made this on page 39 of this book. I assume if you got the same printing, it would be the same. But they, they found that they did a study in 1990 by the psychologist a, or K. Anders Ericsson and two of his colleagues at Berlin's Elite Music Academy. They divided the school's violinists into three groups. The first group were the stars. They're the ones that are going that they felt were destined to become world-renowned solo violinists. The ones that are absolutely at the top of their field. The second were those that were good and would find themselves in world-class symphonies across this uh, this you know this globe. Those that may never get a solo career. They may never be the star, but. Without them, the symphonies would fall apart. And then the third group were those who, students who were most likely never going to play professionally. And I think this is pretty kind of ignorant the way he wrote it. But he, he said that third group were those that were probably just going to be music teachers in the public school system. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but that's how he wrote it. So I know we have in our congregation some music teachers and I don't necessarily hold that same view of his. But you get where I'm coming from. All of these violinists were asked the same question. Over the course of your entire life, from the moment you first picked up a violin, how many hours have you practiced? It was pretty, pretty much the same across the board. Almost every one of them had started playing the violin at the, at the age of five years old. But it was when the students reached eight or nine years old that there were very marked differences that were noticed. Those who uh, were going to be at the top, the best, 
began to practice more than anyone else. Six hours a week by age nine, eight hours a week by age 12, 16 hours a week by age 14, until by the age of 20 they were practicing purposefully and mindfully their instruments well over 30 hours a week. And they began to do that. In fact, they found that by the age of 20, those elite performers had totaled at least 10,000 hours of practice, where by contrast, the merely good students had compiled 8,000 hours. And those that he called the music teachers had only totaled 4,000 hours. So they got to thinking, does this hold true across the board? And so they compared amateur pianists with these professional pianists in the same pattern emerged. The amateurs never practiced more than about three hours a week over the course of their childhood. And by the age of 20, the amateur pianists had totaled 2,000 hours of practice. The other hand, the professionals had, had steadily increased their practice time until around the age of 20, much like the violinist, they had compiled 10,000 hours. Now listen to this very carefully because what Erickson found out in his study was this. He found out that there were no naturals, musicians who had floated to the top of their, their, their you know, while, while practicing just a fraction of what everybody else did. Nor could they find anyone who ground their way to the top, those that, that practiced and worked harder than anyone else, and, and, and they did it. But what they found was it did take a natural talent. But everyone, it boiled down to, did you practice or did you not? Part of this book is interesting because he, he, he goes on to talk about some of the, the, the Czechoslovakia teams or, or the Czechs teams and the Canadians uh, 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 sports teams. And what they found is they had, a, they had a, a cutoff in their youth hockey group where if you were so, you know, if you were this young, you couldn't play. And so what happened was if a person fell where their birthday meant they couldn't start like everybody else did and they kind of had to start late, and a lot of us know what we're talking about when it comes to, say, kindergarten. You know, we've got students who they had to kind of start a year later because of the way their birthday fell. They found that those kids that had to start a year later in the hockey uh, uh, team, those little kids' hockey teams, they did not get enough time to practice, and almost none of those who started late got into the NHL because they could not practice and reach that, that kind of miraculous 10,000 hours. And so it is that it seems that success is not necessarily determined by a natural inclination, but yet there has to be a preparation that gets you ready for what success is. And when you look at the, at, at, at how many of you have ever heard of the, the prayer of Jabez in the Bible, 1 Chronicles chapter 4 and verse 10. And it reads, And Jabez called on God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou would bless me indeed and enlarge my coast, and that thy hand might be with me, and thou, that thou wouldest keep me from evil, that it may not grieve me. And God granted him that which he requested. Bless him. 
If I ask you today, how many of you want a blessing? Almost all of our hands, if not all of our hands, would raise because we want blessings. We, we like that. We want people to preach about it. We want sermons that talk about blessings so that we can enjoy it. It's fun to get it. It's the, the, that phrase in Jabez's prayer, God, enlarge my territory. We want the blessings. Again, you've heard me kind of say it and make fun of it, but we don't preach a, 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 a name it, claim it, or blab it, grab it type of doctrine. It's not that you can just say, I want a blessing, and somehow God is obligated to give it to you. But I believe that when you look at the blessings of God, you find that they, while, while, while God operates on his own, and he has his, you know, we can't make him do anything, all the blessings do have a, a common theme and that is there's some preparation that must be there was a man that walked up to a vending machine one of those where you put your money in and, and you can you know press the coffee button and the cream button and the sugar and you know it mixes it all up and it does it so he, he did it and he, he pressed the buttons labeled coffee double cream and sugar and a cup is supposed to fall how I many of you know the kind of machines I'm talking about well cup was supposed to fall for whatever reason the cup didn't fall and that machine went ahead and just poured the coffee and the proper amount of cream and sugar and it kind of all went down the drain and it shut off and the man said, wow, it's such an automated machine it even drinks it for you. <laughs> I say that to say this, sometimes I feel like that's how people will operate in their faith. I can just go to church and I can, I can do something and you know make a deposit, put some money in, the rest is taken automatically but I'd like to just tell you today there's no such thing as an automated prayer there's no such thing as an automated devotion and there's no such thing as automated worship I can't just come in and cruise control my way with God and so I, I want to I want to show you a few things second Kings chapter 3 you can turn there if you want I'm not going to read it verbatim but I, I'm going to tell you the story that's contained in second Kings chapter 3 and verse 7 and it is that, you know, uh, uh, the army of Moab came against the king of Judah and, and, and the king of Israel, and they were fighting. And so uh, the, the king of Israel came to the king of Judah and said, Hey, Moab's rebelling against me. Would you go up and fight with me? And, and they said, Sure, we'll go with you. Our horses are your horses. Our men are your men. And they went up through Edom and in, in passing through the kingdom of Eden, Eden joined forces with Israel, with Judah. And they went seven days' journey, the Bible says. They fetched a compass of seven days' journey. So you had three armies, the army of Judah, the army of Israel, and the army of Eden. And they, they went seven days into the, you know, the wilderness, if you will. And the Bible says they got there and there was not enough water for all of their army. I mean, think about that. How it blows my mind when I read the Bible and see the numbers that that the Bible puts to things. Whether it's the numbers of horsemen or the numbers of soldiers, or even after a battle, it tells you how many died, and it's tens, maybe hundreds of thousands. That was a lot going on, and I forget who it was uh, uh, back in the history that said an army marches on his stomach. But they're pretty true about that. If the gas runs out, your army stops right now, you know, today. It, you, you've got to make sure you've got enough gas, enough food. Well, they got out there and had no water for their host or for the cattle that was food to follow them. The king of Israel began to cry. He said, I, why, God, did you bring these three kingdoms out here and then let Moab uh, destroy them? 
But Jehoshaphat, one of the kings, he says, you know what, surely there is a prophet around us. And so they begin to call, and sure enough, there was Elisha, the one that had poured water on the hands of Elijah. And he said, I know that, that he hears from God. I know he hears the word of God. And so Elijah, or Elisha, what should we do? And so Elisha says, get me a, a minstrel. And so they had like a church service. I guess, they played some music, Elisha began to pray, and God began to speak, and this is what Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, uh, well let me, let me get down, it says, uh, thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches, you're not going to see wind, neither shall you see any rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water, that you may drink, both you, your cattle, and your beasts, and this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord, and he'll deliver the Moabites in your hand. And so they begin to tell, and so the, 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 the three kings got whoever it was, and they began to create these ditches in the middle of this valley. And, and it was for that, according to the Lord, God was going to fill those up. It wasn't going to rain, no wind, but all of those ditches were going to be filled with water, and then uh, you know, they would have enough to drink. And so it came to pass in the morning, that there was water, and the country was filled with water, and all the ditches were filled with water. And you would think for just a moment, man, that's a great miracle because now they're not going to die of thirst, but God wasn't done yet. In the middle of that, you read that, and the Moabites had heard that the kings would come up against them, and so they gathered all that were able to put on armor and upward, and they stood on the border. And when they rose early in the morning, and the sun shone on those ditches full of water, the Moabites saw the water on the other side, red as blood. Have you ever been driving and you see the reflection of water and it's it's just a different color? Maybe it's red for the for the rising of the sun or something of that. And that's what happened when Moab looked. And, and in Moab's mind, they said, oh, those kings must have had a battle. They must have got fighting against each other. And the ditches are running red. And so they said, now we can go and take up the spoil. And so the Moabites, thinking that everybody had died because of what they thought was blood marched into the camp of Israel and, and Judah and, and, and Edom. And when they came, they found the, these three kings, these three kingdoms weren't dead. They were very much alive. And those three defeated uh, the Moabites and they fled before them. They beat down the cities and they, they beat down the, 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 the stones that were around and the wells of water they stopped. They cut down all the trees. They scorched the land of Moab. But if you think about that, that miracle, that blessing couldn't happen if somebody didn't, didn't get out there and dig a ditch. And if they'd have just dug a little two-foot ditch and gave up, I don't know that that amount of water would have reflected the sun enough to get Moab to do what they did. But there is a blessing that has to be preceded by preparation, it reminds me of 2 Kings chapter 4, another Elisha story. And I've preached it and you've heard it. When that woman who, who, who her sons were going to be sold to the creditors and Elisha said to her, what do you have in your house? And she said, I am so poor, I have nothing but a little pot of oil. And Elisha said unto her, he said, go and borrow vessels abroad from all of your neighbors. Vessels, empty vessels. Don't just borrow a few. Borrow all that you can. And when you are come in, shut the door. Begin to pour your little barrel or your little cruise of oil into that. And, and as long as there's an empty vessel, that cruise of oil is not going to run out. And in my mind, because I like to see the story play out, the Bible says it came to pass when the vessels were full. 
She said unto her sons, bring me another vessel. They said, there is no more vessels. And the oil stopped flowing. And, and again, it's the preparation. And she was able to take all of that oil in all of those vessels and she sold it. And the money that she sold, she was able to pay the debt, stop the creditor, stop the sale of her sons into slavery, and live the rest of her life on that. And if she would have just gathered one little pot, it wouldn't have helped. There was a preparation that preceded her blessings. There in, in Hosea, and I'm taking it a bit out of context, what we read earlier uh, we're still going to get back and talk about Ephraim and the heifer and, the, and the, the, the treading down of the corn. But Hosea chapter 10 and verse 12 to 13 says that you can't have a harvest until you break up the fallow ground. You don't just walk out to one of those fields and it's, it's all hard and it's got weeds growing in it. And you say, well, I sure hope in July I get a crop. It just don't work that way. There's preparation. You, you break up the ground. You till the ground. You, you do something with the weeds. Uh, I, I was having a conversation with Brother uh, Sponsler the other day, and they, they got something new. I guess it's new technology. You know, a lot of times they'll spray the weeds or disc the weeds. Now they have these really cool flamethrowers that they put on the back of tractors, and, and it, it has these long arms, and there's all these little flamethrowers, and it just goes and it burns all the weeds, and then you don't have to use any, uh, any, any chemicals doesn't count all the stuff you're burning and the petroleum and all that but you don't have to use chemicals but you have to prepare the ground if you want it John chapter 9 verse 6 an incredible story I mean this is this is one of those stories probably one of the I don't know if it's the first Bible story I remember but it when, when I look back in my past this is one of those stories that sticks out where the man who was was blind when Jesus had spoken he spits on the ground makes a clay of the spit in the mud and he puts it on the eyes of the blind man. And he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And in my mind, I have thought about that. I was raised, and I think some of you are the same way, that probably the ultimate offense is if someone spits on you. Me and my brother fought like cats and dogs. And my mama, she's not here tonight, so I can tell us. My mama always, always took up for my little brother. My little brother could come in, knock me up the side of the head with a two-by-four, and I would push him out of the way. He'd go tell mom I'd get a spanking. That's how it was in my life, and I, that is as true as it could be. And I remember one day, I remember it vividly, Dad. We were standing in the, in the, uh, 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 the, the living room or the, the uh, little breakfast nook, and we were wrestling and fighting, and Mom would let us wrestle, I guess, until she reached her limit, and then she hit us with whatever she could. But we're, we're wrestling, and, and I got Brad down, and I'm holding him down, and Brad spit on me. And I hauled off and knocked him out. I mean, I bloodied his lip, and he went crying to Mom, and I knew I was dead then. And I remember Dad said, nope, Brad spit. I was like, yes, finally, vindication. <laughs> finally. But, but I was raised, you don't spit on somebody. Can you imagine here, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to put myself in that blind man's, you know, thoughts blind Bartimaeus just hollers Jesus have mercy on me and Jesus heals him he, Jesus stops a funeral procession raises up but for whatever reason the Lord decides to spit in the ground and stick that old nasty mud on the eyes of the blind man and there's no healing that happens I could probably handle it if as soon as the mud touched my eyes boom you know lights and I could see but he says no go and wash and so what we learn is that sometimes there's no vision no miracle without obedience 
That man had to stumble his way with mud in his eye. And he had to, it's kind of like the same thing that he said to the lepers. He says, go and and show yourselves to the priests. And while they went to the priest, it didn't happen while they were sitting at the feet of Jesus. They had to start that journey. And as they got to the priest, they began to look and they were clean. There's no vision, there's no uh, miracle without the obedience. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 prophetic voice it says the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness prepare ye the way of the Lord make straight in the desert a highway for our God and if you will allow me to to say this and again I don't want to box God in but this is what I read there's not going to be a Messiah come until there's a way prepared in Joel chapter 2 verse 12 says therefore saith the Lord turn ye even to me with all your heart with fasting and weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments and turn unto the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger of great kindness and it repenteth him of the evil and and I, I wrote this down in my notes you cannot have the reconciliation of God if there's no repentance there has to be a preparation before the miracle it's John chapter 11 verse 39 Sister Buford and I just did this as a children's sermon in Tennessee last month Jesus goes he hears Lazarus has died Mary and Martha are crying and he looks at Mary and Martha and he says roll the stone away and what's their response Lord he's been in there four days he stinks I can't believe this is what you're doing he said roll the stone away And they roll the stone away. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. At least in that instance, there's no resurrection if you don't remove the stone. Now with Jesus' resurrection, angels came and moved the stone. But sometimes the Lord looks at us and he says, what are you willing to do before I stand there and say, Lazarus, come forth. Revelation chapter 7 teaches us that there's no entrance into heaven without cleansing. When it says there was a great multitude of which no man could number Revelation 7 9 of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues they stood before the throne behold the lamb clothed in right robes palms in their hand and they cried unto the Lord salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb and there were some that asked who are these and he said well they're those that came out of a great tribulation they've washed their robes they've been made them white in the blood of the lamb there's no interest to heaven if there's not a cleansing By the way, that's a great verse to use to say that heaven is not colorblind. There's going to be all, when we get to heaven, racism is going to exist because you're going to see everybody from every nation, every tongue, and I'm thankful for that. And I understand, I I realize on a Wednesday night I've rattled off verse after verse, and I mean, I think you're getting what I'm trying to say, but but the, the point is this. Sometimes... We get complacent in our walk with God and we find ourselves in this easygoing, almost, and I say almost, once saved, always saved doctrine. Now, most of you would square up and say, I don't believe in that, in, you know, in, in a Calvinistic view. I don't believe in once saved, always saved. But here's what I fear I fear that sometimes we get to the point where we can say I repented of my sins I was baptized in Jesus name I was filled with the Holy Ghost when I was 7 or 12 or whatever it was and now I can just kind of sit back live my life and just coast into heaven but this is what God 
was talking about when it came to Hosea chapter 10 and verse 10. Ephraim is a heifer that is taught and loveth to treadeth out the corn. And so here's how it works. In the, this isn't going to work as well as I would like because our music department has newfangled music stands. I need the old-fashioned ones that are round. But when they would get their corn, they would, they would put this corn on a huge, flat, or round rock. And they had another round rock wheel that they put on the end of a shaft, like this. And, and they would put an animal on the, on the shaft, and as that animal would walk around in a circle, this, this uh, uh, other big rock wheel would be grinding over that. Can you get the picture? Flat rock, corn, you got this big wheel, it's moving in a circle, and it's because it's attached to, a, to an oxen or something like that, and they're going around, and so as they do that, the, the, the wheel and the rock is grinding that corn. It turns into a powder. From some of the ones I've seen, there were holes uh, in it that they could, that they could scoot the, the ground corn in, and they could add more. And in, back in, uh, I believe it's Leviticus, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there, there was a law that said you don't muzzle the ox that's treading out the corn. If you're going to make that poor ox walk in a circle all day, don't get mad at him when he reaches down and grabs a bite of corn because he's the one doing the work. And so there's a, a principle there. We don't muzzle the one that's doing the work. You need to, you need to pay the one that's working. You need to, if they're working, they ought to get some benefit of what they're doing, not just be beasts of burden. But here's what happened to Ephraim. Ephraim goes, you know, this is a pretty good life. Walk around in a circle, eat all the corn I work, won't. And in this analogy, Ephraim was getting fat. Ephraim was, you know, it should be good exercise, but it's kind of like being on the treadmill eating Twinkies. <laughs> and so, so now you, you get this visual picture of these fat, sloppy cows that are getting slower and slower. They became at ease with their life. They got caught up in the monotony of the job and at ease and they became complacent. And God said, now again, this is not an analogy of animals. He's, he's using what happened with, with, with Ephraim and, and Israel and Judah. They got lazy on the job. And they, they kind of said, we can coast. And they lost their devotion to God. And they lost their discipline with God. And they, they just kind of said, you know what, we're God's chosen people. We can do anything we want and nothing's ever going to happen to us. We're, you know, we're his kids. We can't get in trouble. And God said, no, no, you're, you're like the, the, the ox that treads out the corn. And he says, enough is enough. I'm going to make you work. And so he said to Ephraim, the, the, you know, you, back to the analogy of the ox, you're going to have to go plow. And Judah, you're going to plow. And he said, you know what? If you're going to just take it easy in the blessings that I've given you and there's no preparation, then I'm going to move you out of that and I'm going to take you in the middle of a hot field and make you plow. And, of course, this was a, 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 a prophecy of, of them going under bondage and, and being in captivity for years under Assyria and Babylon and Persia but it was because they were receiving blessings without any preparation and this is where I want to get with it it's not earth shattering it's not something that you're going to walk out and put on Facebook and go man brother Buford is the most incredible preacher you've ever heard if you want to do that that makes me feel good but you don't have to 
But I, in my life, I've learned this. That God has always had a people that would prepare the way in which he was coming. John the Baptist. The angel said to Zacharias, Luke chapter 1. You're going to have a son. Call his name John. It's going to be joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. He's going to be great. But he says this. Many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom. He is going to go before him. John the Baptist is going to go before the Messiah. John came, if you will, in the spirit of Elisha. But now you and I, we come in the spirit of the Lord. And I want to ask you, I, I know that we could, I could take this and go back to the blessings and say, if there's a blessing that you need in your life, you ought to prepare for it. You ought to kind of get ready for it. But I'd like to just ask you this. You and I who have the Holy Ghost, what way are you preparing for the move of God in every service that we give? Do you come to church and you say, you know what, I want to prepare the way for the Lord? Or do you come to church like the lazy old ox and said, man, I can't wait for the Lord just to pour out the blessing. I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to clap my hands. I'm not going to worship. I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit there and let the Holy Ghost come upon me. In Luke chapter 10, he says this, and these things the Lord, and, and after these things, the Lord appointed other 70 also, and he sent them two by two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. I, I have read that scripture uh, from, from being a, 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 a young adult till now, I've had it underlined in almost every Bible I own. That the Lord said, I'm going to go, th this is during Jesus' own ministry on earth. He said, I'm prepared, I want to go to this city, I want to minister in that city, I want to do a work in that city. But before I go and that city has revival, I'm going to send you out two by two. And he said unto them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into the harvest. And, and, and he goes, he gives them instructions. You, you know, don't carry a purse or a script or shoes. Meaning, you know, don't worry about how you're going to pay for this. Just God's going to take care of it. If you go to a house and you lodge at a house, say peace be to this house. And if everything's good, it's going to work. But if they fight you or, or, or if the peace isn't there, shake off your feet and go somewhere else. And whatsoever city you enter and they receive you, eat the things that are set before you. Heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, the kingdom of God is nigh unto you. What preparation is going on? What preparation? Because God has always, going back kind of to the, to the, uh, the outliers book. God has always honored preparation more than just talent. First Samuel, it's when, when the Lord told Saul, he says, Do you think the Lord has a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Now he has much more of a delight in the obedience to the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And so he was telling Saul, Saul, you could have had it all. You were head and shoulders above everyone else. At your coronation, you were humble and you know, you, you had the right attitude, but somewhere in all of that, you kind of got sidetracked and you just started thinking you deserved it. And that you could do anything and there was no preparation anymore. 
So it doesn't matter what your talent is. The Lord said, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, I reject you from being king. Preparation. Preparation. You, you, you want God to bless you financially? How do you prepare for it? You give. You honor. You say, Lord, I see what your word says been talking, we, we preach a little bit about some spiritual warfare, we've been talking about the, the praying through the tabernacle if, if you want God to, to break through, if you want God to move, if you want God to touch how do you prepare? Prayer and fasting they, he, he looked at his disciples there in Mark chapter 9 and they said how come we couldn't cast out that demon and he said well some things only come forth by nothing but prayer and fasting that, that's not some magical uh formula, what the Lord was saying was you got to prepare if you want the blessing. You want to prepare for a healing? Start increasing your faith. Lord, help my unbelief. Start rejoicing with others that are getting their healing. If you can't rejoice on somebody else's blessing, chances are the Lord doesn't want to bless you. He's kind of seeing, are you ready to prepare? Romans chapter 12 verse 15 Rejoice with them that do rejoice And weep with them that weep So I want to ask you today What preparation do you need to do To receive the blessing What could you do And there's a lot of things I could tell you But I'd kind of like you to do some thinking What could you do At the beginning of a service Or before a service And says Lord what could I do To prepare the way for the move of your spirit What could I do that would touch the heart of someone else that desperately needs to hear from you. What can I do to prepare the way? I want us to stand today, giving you a bunch of illustrations, giving you a bunch of, uh, of things there in the Word of God, and so now it's, it's up to you to take the Word and do the Word. And I want us for just a moment, before we're dismissed, I want you just to close your eyes right where you are. They're going to just play. No, no words to a song, no music, no one saying, I want you and the Lord just to talk and let the Lord say, here's what you could do. If you want the Holy Ghost, how do you prepare? It's simple. You need to repent of your sins. That's a preparation. There's a baptism that you can prepare for. That's a, another way that you precede the blessing of God. What is it that you need? How could you let your faith be prepared? How could you let your, 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 yourself be ready to receive it? Sometimes you've got to break up the fallow ground. So, Lord, I pray right now for each and every one that's gathered here tonight. I'm asking that you would talk to them. We've heard the word. The word is corporate. The word is alive. And so we know it works. But, God, what it